With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Focused on the facts. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. A lot of other news happening right around the world, but in particular in Alabama, and this has been, well, near front page news right across the country for some time. But Alabama has now executed a convicted murderer with nitrogen gas, putting him to death with a first-of-its-kind method that once again placed the U.S. at the forefront of the debate over capital punishment. The state said the method would be humane, but critics called it cruel and experimental. Officials said Kenneth Eugene Smith, age 58, was pronounced dead at 8.25pm at an Alabama prison after breathing pure nitrogen gas through a face mask to cause oxygen deprivation. It marked the first time that a new execution method has been used in the US since lethal injection. Now, the most commonly used method was introduced in 1982. Now, the execution took about 22 minutes and Smith appeared to remain conscious for several minutes. For at least two minutes, he appeared to shake and writhe on the gurney, sometimes pulling against the restraints. That was followed by several minutes of heavy breathing until breathing was no longer perceptible. In a final statement, Smith said, tonight, Alabama causes humanity to take a step backwards. I'm leaving with love, peace, and light. He made the I love you sign with his hands towards family members who were witnesses, thanking you for supporting me. Love, love, all of you, Smith said. Nitrogen gas for the very first time. If you've got a comment to make on all of that, give us a call on our line. From the US or Canada, one 888 From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, you can call in on 1-800-670-310. Now, this is coming out of Israel. It's not related to frontline fighting, but it is related to what occurred on October 7. And it is a consideration that makes you realise how devastating what occurred on October 7 was. Any Israeli hostages who have gotten pregnant from being raped by their Hamas captors in Gaza will have to decide whether to keep their baby or terminate the pregnancy upon their release, according to a new report. Officials with Israel's Ministries of Welfare and Health are drawing up detailed plans to deal with unwanted pregnancies in women who were kidnapped by terrorists after the deadly October 7 attacks. This is being reported by a local news outlet, Wala. In Israel, a pregnancy termination committee typically determines whether to grant an abortion request, but officials are considering bypassing that step to reduce the red tape in the cases of any pregnant former captives. More than 130 Israelis still remain in the clutches of Hamas after nearly four months, including young women and teenage girls with preliminary information suggesting that some have been subjected to sexual abuse in the tunnels under Gaza, both during the initial onslaught and as seen in gruesome videos, 
and also in captivity. Civilian authorities assisted by the Israel Defence Force are creating a program that will coordinate all available resources for treating sexually abused hostages, including women at different stages of pregnancy who will receive medical and psychological help. Now, if you want to referee that particular moral dilemma, you're free to do so on our talkback lines. I find it almost impossible, um, irrespective of my views on abortion, I find it almost impossible. How do you react if that was your predicament after such a horrific attack? What do you do? This is Chris Smith on TNT. It's the stuff. It's that division people are talking about. And that cluelessness that they want to push. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, January the 26th has always been a special day in Australia. It was when a fleet of ships sailed into Farm Cove at the heart of Sydney Harbour to begin creating a colony, a new colony. No historian has shown any evidence that it was anything but a peaceful arrival with repeated attempts in the months and years ahead by Captain Arthur Phillip to form an alliance with Indigenous tribes and leaders. But, of course, a loud minority claim it was the beginning of the end of Indigenous people losing their land, and for some, it was. And in some places, it was very violently. But you can't look at that in isolation without considering what Australia has become which is a superb first world nation in record time with first class health opportunities, job opportunities, legal structures, a greatly increased lifespan for all people, no matter where they come from, no matter what ancestry they have. But this year, I think it's fair to say that woke corporate types jumped on the victimhood bandwagon and created more controversy about Australia Day than at any other time in our history. Let's bring in psychiatrist, social commentator and TV and newspaper contributor, Dr. Tanvir Ahmed, into this discussion. Now, Tanvir was born in Bangladesh and uh, earned his degree at Sydney University. He's a published author of two books. Um, he's got one on mental health called Fragile Nation, another called The Exotic Rissole, a memoir. Dr. Ahmed has worked in rural areas and has a parallel job in the public hospital system as well. Tanvir, happy Australia Day to you and welcome back to TNT. And to you, Chris. Yeah, happy Australia Day, absolutely. What are you doing for Australia Day? Look, I've just come back from the pub, to be honest. Why not? For lunch and, and look, you are right. I'm, I'm interested in this too. Like, I'm trying to wage the mood. Like, does it feel a bit different this year? Is it a bit more subdued? Has there been more criticism than usual? Uh, and I would probably say yes. I mean, it's been building for several years, but I wonder if it's reached a slightly different level this time. Um, and you alluded to the corporate side, and I guess it has come from all the different institutions, or certainly the corporate side, but there's also the outright main government, which has done it overtly by essentially allowing the councils and other groups not necessarily to hold citizenship ceremonies. So these all sort of weaken the stance, just weaken the kind of status of Australia Day. And then even, you know, obviously Cricket Australia, tennis, you know, a lot of the sporting bodies, you know, that really heated up during the week too. So I'm sure there, there'll be others. Again, I haven't seen enough of the town. You know, I'm in Sydney, but um, I imagine there'll be 
a blow backlash as well. I'm sure there'll be some people that would celebrate it even in a you know more um, kind of well, I guess a more enthusiastic way exactly because of the backlash. Or I, I think that's right, and that's things. certainly my anecdotal evidence, both on yeah. emails and chat lines. I get the feeling from Australian listeners and followers that they will be commemorating Australia Day more than they ever have before because of the backlash. Look, I hope that's the case, but I wonder if they may do it in more private. So there's a part of me wonders, it's a bit like these whole modern trends where you've got the, the you know, the what do they call the shy Trump voters or something like that, where increasingly you may have a majority of people that believe in something, but they're increasingly embarrassed or it's stigmatised to outwardly, you know, show that view. So I wonder if Australia is starting to head down that road, where even though there's a majority of people who actually want it on that day and want to celebrate it, they they feel almost uncomfortable about doing it. I certainly hope that's not the case. I hope that's not the case. And um, I struggle. You see, the thing about changing the day, the, the thing yeah. about changing the day, Tanvir, is that it doesn't change our history. So, therefore, you have Australia Day. Let's just pick a number. January the 1st, because that's when Australia, the word, the country, was proclaimed Australia. Let's just say January the 1st. It doesn't take away from the fact that this land was colonised. It doesn't take away the fact that the English came here and very quickly we became a first world country. They are, that's not in dispute. But are we going to labour the victimhood and labour the point forevermore? Well, that's the thing, and that's where there is really a no-win thing. If you start engaging with this and, you know, essentially responding, then if you look at the actual underlying beliefs around this, like no new day is going to alter the beliefs that, uh, you know, the, the group that might push, the groups that might push this the most, where they effectively see Australia and, and arguably much of the Western world, you know, a lot of you know, every just about every country in the world has had some sort of, indigenous group and there's been invasions and you know yeah. it's just the historical norm but the deeper belief that underlies this is that australia is effectively illegitimate right so that belief i mean do you really think that's going to be appeased no. if you pick another day right no, not well, a chance I, I don't think so not a and yet I've just had a look at two polls this morning, two polls that emerged yeah. during the week. And if you look at one, one said 80% of Australians want it to stay right where it is and celebrate Australia Day. Um, then there was another one that said 60%. So say it's in between. Say it's 70% of Australians between the two surveys that want it to remain right where it is. Boy, oh boy, we've had, I think, an unequal uh, pushback, an unequal controversy brewing leading up to this day. Exactly. Well, let's say, yeah, let's say for argument's sake, yes, yeah, two out of three Australians, then, yeah, the blowback seems, you know, well beyond. And, and uh, if you want to take the numbers, it's almost exactly like The Voice. You know, you look at The Voice where it was effectively two out of three Australians voted no. Yeah. Yet institutionally, you know, there was a huge uh, support for the yes vote. So it's almost identical in statistically in that respect, where there's all these sort of institutional forces pushing something that is just not the majority and doesn't seem to be necessarily altering that many views. It, it may be that it, there's some group, some people who are quieter about it or feel more uncomfortable about it, but I do still wonder if it's actually altering too many views, like all this sort of hoo-ha every other, every other year. 
Um, and it is why I do think that I still think there's an element of it, the most powerful component. And this is where I would criticize Albanese. I think where it really does come from the top down. And if you've already kind of, if you've given out a broad hint effectively from the prime minister's office that this is, this day has slightly shaky origins and it's not entirely, we accept if there's, Many of you that are uncomfortable about it. Yeah, essentially, essentially what Albanese has said, that your, your stance is equally, whether, you, whether you're anti-Australia Day or you're uh, subdued about it or you're very pro, all of, those, all of those statuses are equal, right? And that's essentially what he's alluded to. And that really weakens, the weakens the very foundations of the day. So even though he hasn't done that, in a you know loud and kind of overt way, I still think that's one of the most powerful messages weakening today. Yeah, I think you're right. That certainly plays a role, and it certainly allows corporate Australia to go down this virtue signalling path, like Woolies did, like uh, Aldi did. We're not selling any paraphernalia, and I thought. Um, that they showed their true colours. I think people have voted with their feet despite what they say and haven't shopped at Woolworths as a protest against all of this. Uh, and I think they kind of tried at the end to make up for their turning their back on Australia Day. Th they can't help themselves, these boards and these CEOs, can they? They'll find any minority to go into bat for to make themselves look warm and fuzzy. Well, that's right. And I, you sort of got bitten in the bum a little bit uh, this time. So you do hope after the voice... Especially after The Voice, that's what I found amazing because if there was one event where corporate Australia really was caught with their pants down, it was The Voice where you had all, you know, all these major institutions coming in behind it, you know, notably Qantas and others, and they, they really had egg on their face when basically you know, all their shareholders essentially voted no. And you would really think Woolworths would, would see that and go, well, hang on, I don't think it's the time to go. You know, I mean, sure, if you want to reduce your products purely for a business point of view, you know, do that. You can respond to the numbers and go, okay, if that's actually true. Um, but to make a big song and dance about it, which they've done, I suspect they will regret that. Now, Chris, you alluded to, you know, me being born in Bangladesh. I think the immigrant point of view is actually really interesting here. And well, let me take a break. I want to come back and yeah. talk to you about that. I, I think it's very okay. interesting, especially if you go along to citizenship ceremonies and you realise how thankful people are. But let's do that after a very quick break. On TNT. TNT's Pervoye Morich. He details factually how Russia is rolling out the algorithm ghetto. Um, you know, the, the, the multipolar edition of the algorithm ghetto, a prototype of a traffic light that records traffic violations by a pedestrian at a crossing was tested in Moscow. So Russians now, they'll, they'll have a, the government will take a snapshot of their face and then run that through the databases to figure out who is who and then find them, uh, I suppose. Uh, and then, you know, he, he points out that there are a lot of developments now. Moscow 2030, it's, it's, uh, they want to make uh, Moscow achieve smart city status. Uh, and there's just, you know, you look at the white papers, Moscow and Russia are all in on Agenda 2030, smart cities, algorithm ghetto, digital IDs. Pervoye Morich on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. 
News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. It's time to switch on today's News Talk Radio. Very entertaining. TNT. All right, Dr. Tanvir Ahmed is my guest right now. You were born in Bangladesh. Tell me from an immigrant's point of view what Australia Day means to you and your friends. Well, to be honest, this morning I read a wonderful interview by, with an Indian couple in Perth, and they were just talking about it's India Republic Day, so it falls on the same day as Australia Day. And he was just saying it's such a great um, expression of his identity, because he loves celebrating both as a really proud Indian Australian. And a place like India, I mean, that has this colonial past, etc. And it's something to reflect on, but that's not a reason not to, you know, absolutely celebrate the, the modern nature of the country. And likewise, I mean, I, just, I, mean, God, I mean, much of the world would absolutely love to be Australian citizens. Oh, without and, a doubt. I mean, this is, a, this is such an amazing country in terms of what we've achieved in really quite a short time. Like barely, you know, just 200 odd years, you've, you've got this multicultural, egalitarian, highly prosperous nation. And I must say, I'm like, I'm so thankful that we migrated here. Like, I, I, you know, that's probably the single biggest element, that, you know, the day we were on a plane coming here. I mean, that's the single most defining event in my life. So, and I think there will be many immigrants like that. And look, immigrants take a lot of sympathy. I mean, you know, A, we're from countries that may have had some sort of colonial past. You, you'll identify a little in terms of being another minority group with Aboriginal groups. So you can reflect and have huge uh, amounts of sympathy um, for the Aboriginal uh, past, and, you know, whether it's, whether it's, you know, all these deaths through war or illness and, and the current disadvantage. You can absolutely embrace that and want that improved like I, can't, I can barely think of an australian that would not fall uh in that category where they absolutely want those changes but that's you can reflect on that and still embrace the greatness of this country um and i don't think that they have to be at odds uh and i don't think it's, it's acceptable to look at you know all the achievements of this country then but still think this notion of invasion somehow cancels all that out like I yep. just, to me, that um, it just seems silly. And yeah, as you say, I think the average immigrant, I mean, I can't speak for all immigrants, but my impression is, uh, and I can certainly speak for myself and many other groups who are just very proud to be in this nation. And, and they often, I mean, this is the other thing. If you've, if you've lived around the world, you know, these sort of things, you know, there's invasions and minority groups and there's wars and, you know, most of the world who've migrated here come from countries where there's been all sorts of upheaval and different mm. groups vying for power and resources. I mean, that's just the nature of history. They and, have seen how bad it know, can get. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's where sometimes I do think some of the people who, and not necessarily Aboriginal groups, I think local uh, activists, often from, you know, dare I say it, often white, rich white people often, that's often um, the groups that most commonly... I mean, they would have, sometimes they have, they're a bit clueless. Um, well, are they clueless the, or are, have they got so, become so entitled and swimming in riches, as in the richness of the country, not wealth riches, that they forget how grateful they should be and they're ungrateful? 
Yeah, I think there is an element of that, definitely, where they're, you know, they're, they're, it's called some sort of luxury beliefs where they're, you know, you're just so prosperous, you're so wealthy, then you can have these luxury type beliefs, you know, as, you know, as part of, you know, dare I say, you know, even though I don't like the term very much, like virtue signaling. Um, and yeah, you, you, they have the luxury to do that. Look, again, the reality is, I think the debate's not illegitimate. Like, it's fine. Have that debate. Reflect on the past. But it is, it is curious, the levels of guilt and shame that have been... Actually, well, there is a bit of a class element to this, isn't there? Like, I do notice, and I see this in my patients, Chris, and, and, you know, lots of people, and you would see this, you know, right throughout, where I think people forget, say an ordinary person, if I'm just an ordinary person, you know, I just have a, you know, whatever, just an ordinary, let's say I'm, you know, I'm at the checkout or I'm, you know, I'm a tradie, whatever it is. They're going about their life. I think people forget how much pride, if, you, if I'm able to take pride in my nation, that's a huge part of me feeling good about myself, mm-hmm. right? And that's what annoys me sometimes where you'll have groups, often, let's say, wealthy cosmopolitan groups, and they, they, might, they might not identify as strongly with, I don't know, just being tied to place and, and uh, having lived, say, in a, in a pocket of Australia all their life or whatever it is, they, you're taking that away from you know, pr- the vast majority of people where it gives them so much pride yeah. And that follows through into themselves as individuals, that them as an individual, they might be an ordinary person, no, nothing great, no great achievements, etc. But this gives them a huge sense of pride that they carry, th- carry throughout the whole year, throughout their lives. And I think, they, I think sometimes we forget the importance of that and how much it means. That's very true. Just one last thing on the migrant issue, not issue, but the migrant tangent you go along to a citizenship ceremony, and I've been to many, both as a reporter and as a friend of a uh, new arrival. They break down in tears when they're proclaimed an Australian citizen. They appreciate it so much. And as a as someone born here, I look at them and I remember how I felt when I witnessed all of this. I felt to myself, I'm not grateful enough about what I've got and where I live. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And it's funny, often, often you see interviews of recent immigrants. I remember seeing one just during the week with an Irish immigrant. They're talking about how hard it is to live in Ireland. And he was basically saying, like, within a year, he's in Queensland. He's got 10 people working for him. And he's like, God, the opportunities here just are extraordinary. And again, mm-hmm. it's another one of these cases where a lot of locals don't necessarily, you know, see. And this is the other thing I'd say about Australia that's different to many parts of the world. It's actually much easier to be Australian than uh, for a new immigrant than it is in many parts of the world. Like, for example, say we migrated to Germany or France, it would be two or three generations before I might be seen as French. And even then, I'd be, I'd be lucky. Like, there's yeah, no true. way within a generation that I would feel Australian. I'd be, you know, I'd be a, here I am, you know, contributing on you know, national forums. Like, that is highly unlikely in much of, say, Western Europe, etc. It would take, it would be much tougher to be accepted as Australian. So it's actually, that's another thing to celebrate about the country, where you can access being Australian much easier than large, you know, large sections of the world who might even have lots of migrants. And again, I think it's another thing that people take for granted and they don't realise. You mentioned the world. I wonder whether how much of this that's now being played out in Australia, questioning our uh, growth our creation, our antecedents. I wonder whether this is just 
a product of what's happening worldwide because right around the world we've got people who want to rewrite history, who want to cancel those with historic black marks. They want to bring down tradition. This is not peculiar only to Australia, is it? No, absolutely not. And, of course, the force has come from international, um, you know, just cultural currents, if you like. But I do think Australia is arguably a bit more vulnerable in a way. Like, even though the same forces are in Britain or America or right throughout the Western world, you know, America, for example, America still has a really firm patriotism and they've just got very sort of, you know, proud beliefs about their country and their underlying structures. And even a place like Britain, which may have a degree of that sort of shame about its colonial past and its declining influence. It still has so much history and such a strong kind of national and sort of ethnic identity that, um, I don't know, it's still, they're certainly, it's not, they're not, um, it's not like they're not vulnerable, but I feel like because we're relatively young and we're still kind of being shaped and, you know, we've, there's still so much being contested, there is a part of me worries that perhaps Australia is more vulnerable to this, these sort of forces than, than some other countries. So that worries me. Yeah, the difference is I can have a property in the United States and flying the American flag in the front yard is not out of place, where in Australia it would be very abnormal, right? Well, I think one of the things that annoys me with just the notion of patriotism, I think now, for example, like I'm perfectly comfortable with an Australian flag. I can walk around T-shirt. But see, I'm an immigrant, and the reason it's suddenly got this edge is because the critics of Australia Day now will say any type of patriotic show is somehow associated with whiteness and racism. Like it's some yeah, sort they of do that often. It's some sort of automatic chest beating. And that is such a tiny minority. Like it would be such a tiny minority of people who are patriots. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I, I, I don't doubt that it probably does. But uh, I, I think it's just a poor characterization of people who might take pride in their country, including many non-white immigrants. And I mean, they're certainly not, you know, chest beating kind of racists. So this is one of the big mischaracterizations that's occurred in probably the last decade or two about any sort of white country taking pride in their nation and their institutions. That, that's, I think, I think that's really one of the key undercurrents here that is, that is unfortunate unfair and, and often inaccurate. Yeah, well said. Good summary. Very good summary. You've helped us unpack some really hovering issues over the past couple of weeks that I think people have probably thought deeply about themselves, but you've helped us wade through all of that as usual. I'll let you continue to enjoy and uh, celebrate your Australia Day, Tanvir. Thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Chris. Much appreciated. Psychiatrist, journalist, uh, someone who you might see quite often on television and uh, also in newspapers. Um, he's a terrific social commentator, Tanvir, and it was, I, I thought as a migrant today, it was a really good tangent to what is a very, very proud day for most Australians, Australia Day. And it should be, it should be. Putting it all into context, nothing is perfect in life. And certainly the um, civilization, the productive um, turning of a nation like Australia did in 1788 and beyond, nothing will be perfect. Nothing will be uh, perfect under those kind of civil standards. But right now, 
I think we've developed into a sensational first world country that we can all benefit from. The opportunities are there. Putting it all into context, we have a lot to be proud of. Let's take a break. I've got to get to news right here on TNT. Now. I've got, I've got good news and, and bad news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. US Vice President Kamala Harris has been called out for her hypocrisy after sensationally warning Americans not to vote for Donald Trump because he'd go after his political enemies. In a stunning show of solidarity, 25 US states have vowed to stand with Texas in its fight to defend the southern border. And a new survey has found 28% of Generation Z adults in America are now either gay, lesbian, bisexual or something else entirely. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio. Well, our Australian of the Year Award has gone to an amazing pair of medical scientists, Professor Richard Scollier and his research partner, Professor Georgina Long, were presented with the Australian of the Year Award for 2024 in Canberra last night. They're credited with using breakthrough immunotherapies to save the lives of thousands of Australians whose diagnoses of skin cancer would once have proven fatal. 15 years ago, if you had advanced melanoma, most patients were dead within five years. Survival was less than 5%. In fact, most patients had died within one year, 75% of them. But through incredible discoveries that have made in melanoma, clinical trials that Georgina has led, we've reduced the lethality of advanced stage melanoma. And now survival is more than 50% at five years. Our goal is now to cure the other 50% and in doing so, hopefully help other cancers as well. So congratulations to Richard and Georgina. I think all in all, over decades in this country, we kind of get our selection for Australian of the Year right, more or less. Um, but you know what? There are other less qualified, uh, less renowned lifesavers who work very, very hard every single day to create awareness about other deadly diseases and in turn save lives and make carers' lives a lot easier, which is very important. I thought it was worth reminding us all of that in the program today. One such person is motor neurone disease campaigner Jane Simpson from Melbourne. Now, Jane has spent decades working with Australian and global corporations to identify improvement opportunities within their policies and procedures. She's spoken at both international and national conferences, and in the middle of that, managed to win a Best Small Business Award. Jane Simpson, happy Australia Day to you and welcome to TNT. Chris, happy Australia Day to you, and thank you for having me. What are you doing apart from appearing on TNT today? What are you doing for Australia Day? How oh. are you getting into the uh, occasion? Well, Chris, I had a little tumble down some stairs recently, so I'm instructed to sit at home with my foot up. <laughs> right, you're convalescing. <laughs> but, you know, I have just was listening to your previous guest, and I've been reflecting on the gratitude and the beautiful country, and we're safe, and we're so lucky to live here, Chris. We really are. Yeah, we sure are. Um, now, your late husband, Robert, was diagnosed with MND in 2021, and he died mm -hmm. 10 months later. Tell us about that shock diagnosis, and did you think that he would last longer than 10 months when you were given that diagnosis? 
Yeah, just for your uh, listeners around the world, MND is also known, known as ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, Robert, yeah, we did. We did because the average is 27 months. Um, Robert had had a skiing accident. He was going really fast down a double black run, which was just Robert. Uh, He crushed a vertebrae and he didn't recover as was expected. It took us 12 months and eight neurologists to get that diagnosis of motor neuron disease because they kept saying perhaps it's, you know, neuropathy from a damaged nerve. Uh, yeah, we were diagnosed. I always say we because it is a family diagnosis. Sure. Uh, he was diagnosed in on the 21st of December 2020, and he died on the 20th of December 2021. That must have been a very, very horrific period, that 10 months when he went downhill so quickly. He did, Chris. He uh, Motor neuron disease affects every single part of your body. So it began with him uh, having trouble walking, then it began with him unable to do basic tasks such as getting dressed in the morning. Um, it affects it affects the neurons in your muscles. So anywhere that you have a muscle, it's going to be affected. So that stops you talking, swallowing, walking, basically moving. Everything goes except for your brain. You're still totally aware of what's happening. Which is just so cruel, Chris, isn't it? Oh, it's the cruelest, isn't it? What? It's just incredibly cruel. Mm. And tell me, it must feel like yesterday, though, going through that 10 months, although it was only a couple of years ago, it must feel like yesterday. It was a tough 10 months because it was COVID and we couldn't get any support. So it was just he and me. And, um, you know, I live my life in business, not nursing, but I do know how to nurse a bit now, (laughs) Chris. Um, that was very tough, very tough. And uh, my daughter said the other day, we've just gone past the two-year mark. Uh, the first year you're really in shock and then the second year you cry. And we're just a few weeks over that two-year mark and I think we're trying to all find our new normal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it'll mm. be a, a further transition, no doubt. Mm. Since then, you mm. have become involved with fight MND and mm-hmm. MND Australia to try mm-hmm. and make a difference. Mm-hmm. And you're the chair of the MND Research Collective Lived Experience Expert Driving Team, which is a mouthful. I know. Uh, you've certainly gone the whole hog, haven't you? Why? Why? Because it's just such a cruel disease. It is a terminal disease. There is no hope. You know, I often say to people, you should think about that drive home that Robert and I had when we'd been at the neurologist and you're told you have motor neuron disease and there is no hope. There is absolutely not one single skerrick of hope you are going to die. And I would like to try and make a difference somehow. Now, whether it's along the road of making life better for people who are living with motor neuron disease, so around the care for them. We don't have any, we don't even have any care protocols in Australia for caring for someone with motor neuron disease. Well, that's that's interesting you say that because I was about to ask, my next question was I couldn't imagine someone working out from a standing start how to care for someone with MND. Oh, it's a nightmare. I, I, a lot of Dr. Google. Um, nowadays, uh, what uh, 
Look, some some of the MND associations run seminars or workshops to help you. Even simple things like lifting him, showering him, changing him, all of those things are very difficult and all of a sudden you're just whacked into that position. Mm. Going back to the MND Research Collective, it was started by Dr Beck Sheehan from Fight MND and Dr Gethin Thomas from MND Australia and they've had this brilliant idea, you know, best ideas are simple ideas, is to get everybody around the country who's either researching, who's uh, in neurology, allied health, together to discuss what's happening in research and what needs to happen in research. And at the core of that is the lived, ex- what's it called? Lived experience expert driving team. Yes, exactly. Lived experience <laughs> expert driving team. <laughs> it's such a long name. Anyway, basically it is people like me, but more importantly, people who have motor neuron disease. And the research community is now taking their lead from us. So what would you like studied? What is important to you? What would she we be re- researching? Right. Now, the reason that I am chair, even though I opened it to people with MND, and they said, but, Jane, we need continuity. We need someone who's going to be there the whole time because the people who are in my group, there's about 60 of us, and let's face it, many of them are not going to live to the end of the year. So we need continuity across the board. Yeah. It's sad, Chris. It's really sad. It is. It is. I can hear it. I can understand it. Um, And just to fill in your spare minutes in every day, you've also Mm -hmm. created a podcast, Mm -hmm. Let's Talk MND. What a wonderful resource for those entering into this terrible period. It is. When you're diagnosed, you feel totally and absolutely alone. You are terrified and alone. And since I've been in so beautifully invited into this community of people with MND, there are so many people all around the country, not just in um, this in the main cities, but regional and rural, and often they have no support whatsoever. So I thought, oh, let's try a podcast and build a community and a family of people around the country, and now it's going around the world. Brilliant. Um, of people who have motor neuron disease. Now, I interview people who have motor neuron disease. I interview their partners. I interview people like uh, researchers, neurologists, lawyers, because we've all got to get our wills in order, um, palliative care. So the whole gamut of anything that is required with motor neuron disease. I also interview people who can't talk because with motor neuron disease, you very often lose your voice. But thanks to AI, people can now use eye gaze technology. So it's a very laborious process, but they use their eyes to click on the letter on the screen, which makes a sentence and then makes a paragraph. Wow. And that is extraordinary. And so if you can't talk, you are not precluded from this podcast. It makes us laugh uh, when I'm interviewing someone who can't talk that we're doing a podcast. What a process. What an Mm -hmm. amazing process. Mm -hmm. Do you think they'll end up finding a cure? I was interviewing a researcher the other day and I said, do we have hope? And he said, we absolutely have hope. There's a lot of amazing things going on there. I interviewed a guy from Duke University the other day, Dr. Richard Bedlack, and he's seeing and researching at the moment 60 spontaneous MND reversals. Now, if we can work out why they're reversing, 
something to do with protein, something, you know, all that really yeah. brainiac stuff. Yeah. Um, but I just know from the researchers I speak with in this country too, they are committed and passionate. Great. Mm. Isn't that a hopeful? That's a hopeful development. I like uh, to hear that. Now, what are your, your, our paths crossed some years ago. They did, um, when Russia created their military operation in Kiev and your son was in Ukraine at the time he and was. You, you contacted me on that other station to talk about how you were hoping your son could leave and then we got him on the radio yeah, and we, we got you on the radio and you were able to have a conversation with him. We Where, did, Chris. <laughs> where's his journey up to now? Okay, so he and his partner, who's Ukrainian, the two of them left there. They ended up uh squatting in Amsterdam for about eight months. Then now in London, uh, Julia was able to get a refugee visa there. So she's worked, they're both working there Terrific. and they're both happy and safe. Oh, isn't that good? Isn't that good? Oh and he was God. home, was he, for Christmas? He came home for Christmas with Julia and it was just, first time our family had been together since Robert died and it was just joy. I bet you didn't want to let him go again. I didn't, Chris. Mm. <laughs> I understand completely. We will keep in touch and I'll try and help you as often as I possibly can. I know. But all the very best with the podcast. Uh, let's talk MND and, of course, with the entire organisation and helping carers and helping those who are thrust into this awful, horrific time without cho word. choice. Thank you so much for your time. Happy Australia no. Day again. Happy and, Australia Day, Chris. Uh, look after your injury. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Tom. Bye. Good bye. Jane Simpson. There you go. If you want to hear the podcast, it's called Let's Talk MND. River writes in the chat box on tntradio.live. River says, MND is such a terrible thing. Sorry to hear this, but thanks for sharing your story. Jane, well said. Thank you, River. Appreciate that. I've got to take a break, and then I want to come back and hear from you. But if we don't get to that, there's more to come, including uh, some hilarious writing from a young race caller, uh, commemorating the days of dirty dealing between police in Sydney and judges and crooks and all sorts of things. Anyway, I'll explain it more right after a break on TNT. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. For decades, I've been calling out the national and various state GOP committees for not closing open Republican primaries to non-Republican voters. It just makes sense. When they played in the Super Bowl, the New England Patriots weren't allowed an opportunity to determine who the New York Giants starting quarterback would be. And Democrat and various leftist voters shouldn't be able to influence who the Republican nominee for president or any office should be. Luckily, we have someone with the courage of her convictions to stand up and say this is wrong and it needs to stop. Merrimack County GOP Chairwoman Karen Testerman filed court together with some New Hampshire Republican voters today asking the court to enjoin the counting of undeclared voter and same-day registrant voter ballots until it can be determined whether they can legitimately participate in the Republican primary. Kudos to Chairwoman Testerman and let's hope that the federal court does the right thing and protects the New Hampshire GOP's First Amendment right to freedom of association. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Food isn't just fuel to live, it's fuel to grow. My family relied on public assistance to help provide meals for us. 
These meals fueled my involvement in theater and the arts as a child, which fostered my love for acting. The Feeding America network of food banks helps millions of people put food on the table. When people are fed, futures are nourished. Join the movement to end hunger, and together we can open endless possibilities for people to thrive. Visit feedingamerica.org slash act now. Focused on the facts. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right. Well, in Australia, one of the most notorious crooked cops, a multiple killer, in fact, Roger Rogerson passed away after suffering an aneurysm in jail. Now, Roger began as a hero to other cops in the force. Take it from me. I know a lot of senior police who have now retired who remember the days when he was their hero, arresting crooks when uh, others could only hope to bring them to justice. And he did so bravely and without question. He was heading fast for much higher rank. Some were suggesting at the time when he was running the armed hold-up squad that he was destined to become the commissioner of the police in the state of New South Wales until his violent treatment of informers and drug dealers became very questionable and extremely chronic. When he was kicked out of the force, he had the temerity to join two other scoundrels and perform on stages throughout Australia as the good, the bad and the ugly. It was so Roger Rogerson brave even under fire. He was accused of ordering a hit on another police officer by the name of Michael Drury, who was lucky to survive that shooting at Chatswood, and he was jailed for life at age 80 for the killing of a young drug dealer. Um, But Rogerson operated in Sydney at a time when some of the judiciary were very easily paid off. Uh, where suspects were given green light treatment by the police in exchange for large packets of cash. And the relationship between some detectives and the bad guys were very cosy indeed. We had a police royal commission in New South Wales which cleaned up some of that, but maybe not all of it. And in a tribute of sorts, or maybe the tribute word is not the word to use, to commemorate then these dirty deeds, and Dirty Days, a very clever race caller has put together a greyhound race that he's titled the Roger Rogerson Cup. It is very, very Australian satire. Have a listen to this. Runners are behind the boxes here for the Roger Rogerson Cup, race eight on the program, sponsored by the Funny Walk Society. Good backing here for brown paper bag from the red rug and support for the check here, done himself a mischief. At longer odds, protecting judges whilst the fingers in the pie. Green light, stand in the motion, stand by for a start. Roger Rogerson Cup. Racing on the outside, protect judges whilst the fingers in the pie. Punching up for the middle boxes, bribery's totally legal. On the speed, I accidentally shot 12 blokes. Now brown paper bag, further back in the field, working into it, ruined plenty of lives. Done himself a mischief, second last, the Rogerson Rogerson Cup. Was should have uh, used bricks a long way back last of all. Pretty expensive storage units out in front. Protecting judges whilst the fingers in the pie. Working home, accidentally shot 12 blokes out by five. Accidentally shot 12 blokes, beat, ruined plenty of lives. Brown paper bag late on the scene. Further back in the field, done himself a mischief. 
Should have used bricks a long way back the field, protecting judges whilst the fingers in the pie. Now, second last was bribery's totally legal, and last of all was pretty expensive storage units. There you go. Pretty expensive storage unit. For those who don't know, Roger Rogerson was caught um, parking the body of his executed drug dealer uh, in a storage unit, which is where that comes from. But the other um, terms for those dogs pretty well sum up and can explain themselves. Uh, we find that funny in Australia because we are a convict nation after all. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is the day in 1788 when convicts came out on the first fleet and were used as basically slave labour for quite a lot of a long time until, of course, they were released from custody and ended up owning parcels of land and then the generations moved on. Uh, but that is the history of Australia, which is why we find that in some ways quite satiric and funny. Um, the story of the day, though, if you were wading through the papers and you were Australian or you were not Australian but you wanted to, I don't know, grasp some of the idiosyncrasies about what Australia is all about, read from the Australian newspaper today an article written by Geoffrey Blaney. Geoffrey Blaney is one of the Australia's most famous historians. He said, when you read the Daily News, you often gain the distinct impression that Australia Day is approaching extinction. Many critics say that its death should be hastened. That's certainly been the impression for the past three weeks. And yet the latest opinion polls he wrote indicate that most voters do not wish to alter the date of Australia Day. A mere one third of voters wish to call it Invasion Day. These wreckers may be our products of an education profession which more than ever before is inclined to denigrate its own nation. A lot of what's going on can be sourced from what they're being told in school. He's exactly right. Is our history a standing disgrace? The more indignant critics of Australia Day say that it glorifies what was really a prolonged catastrophe. It is true that for decades, the Indigenous people mostly died from diseases to which they had no immunity. It is true that in frontier conflicts, they were killed in large numbers. The whole truth, however, can be elusive. We are easily mistaken, each of us. He says, it is regrettable that many Aboriginal Australians were long deprived of voting rights, but this is only a fraction of the total truth. He talks about Aboriginal Australians, few in number, control at least 55% of Australian soil. It is the wish of Anthony Albanese that by the year 2030, they should own or control 70%. The latest census reveals that a surprisingly large group of large town and city Aboriginal families are prospering. Good news does not always reach television news. And he goes on to talk about the fact that many historians and Aboriginal activists will probably continue to deplore January 26. Um, and then he sums up near the end of what is uh, quite an incredible article. He sums up and says, in st its standards of living make it a paradise for most of today's immigrants compared with the lands they left behind, as we discussed with Tanvir. These are some of the powerful reasons why Australia Day is worth celebrating. How good's that? That is just fantastic. Geoffrey Blaney wrote it. Now, before I leave you, I wanted to play a poem. Now, I do have time to do this, which gives people a chance to think very deeply about how much they love their nation, not just Australia. Now, I love my country. I love Australians. 
I've spoken to Australians on television and on radio for about 45 years. I love them immensely. They are unique. They are different, but they are good different. They are brave. They are helpful. Um, and we love our country physically, our landscapes, our weather, the beaches, the mountains, the bush. Here's Queensland poet Rupert McCall, who wrote this award-winning poem for all Australians who love their country almost too much. But these are words that I think can transfer to your own country if you're not Australian. Here's Rupert with what's called green and gold malaria. The day would soon arrive when I could not ignore the rash. I was obviously ill, and so I called on Dr Nash. This standard consultation would adjudicate my fate. I walked into his surgery, and I gave it to him straight. I said, Doc, I wonder if you might explain this allergy of mine. It's like I get these pins and needles running up and down my spine. From there, across my body, it will suddenly extend. My neck will feel a shiver and the hairs will stand on end. And then there is that symptom that a man can only fear. It's a choking in the throat and the crying of a tear. Well, the doctor scratched his melon with a rather worried look. His furrowed brow suggested that the news to come was crook. What is it, doc? I motioned. Have I got a rare disease? I'm man enough to cop it sweet, so give it to me, please. Yeah, I'm not too sure he answered in a puzzled kind of way. Seems you've got some kind of fever here. But it's hard for me to say. When is it that you feel this most peculiar condition? Well, I thought for just a moment. And then I gave him my position. I said, Doc, I get it when I'm standing in an Anzac Day parade. And I get it when the anthem of my native land is played. And I get it when Meninga makes a kiwi-crunching run. And when Border grits his teeth to score a really gutsy ton. I got it back in 91 when Far Jones held the cup. I shivered at Royal Ascot when Black Caviar got up. I get it when the banjo takes me down the snowy river. And Matilda sends me waltzing with a billy-boiling shiver. I get it when I see our farmers fighting for their names. I get it when our firefighters walk towards the flames. It hit me hard when Bertram raised the boxing kangaroo and when Perkins won from lane eight. Well, the rashes were true blue. So tell me, Doc, I questioned. Am I really going to die? He broke into a smile before he looked me in the eye as he fumbled with his stethoscope and pushed it out of reach. He wiped away a tear and then he gave this stirring speech. He said, uh, from the beaches here in Queensland, son, to the sweeping shores of Broome, on the harbour banks of Sydney where the Waratahs in bloom, from Uluru at sunset to the mighty Tasman Sea, in the Adelaide cathedrals, at the roaring MCG. From the Great Australian Bight up to the Gulf of Carpentaria, the medical profession call it green and gold malaria. But forget about the textbooks, son, the truth I shouldn't hide. The rash that you've contracted here is good old Aussie pride. I'm afraid that you were born with it, and one thing is for sure, you'll die with it, young man, because there isn't any cure. 
Green and Gold Malaria by Rupert McCall. That's all I've got time for. I'll be back next week. I hope you can join me then. Dean Macken is up next with David McBride together for a very special Australia Day broadcast. You have a fantastic weekend. This is Chris Smith on TNT.